0: Welcome to another episode of 353rd. I'm Scott Barstow. And I'm Anders Brown. Anders, it's show number 90. Museum. 90? Yeah. Who would have thought that we'd still be recording and still be friends? Are we still friends? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure at all. <laughs> not sure at all. So for our 90th show, we've actually got a great guest on today. And we rarely have guests just because we like talking a lot. But... Today, we've got a tremendous guest on. Rich Newton is the author of three books. Uh, The first was Stop Talking, Start Doing, which was a bestseller in the UK for 60 weeks. He also has written The Little Book of Thinking Big, which was a Sunday Times number one bestseller in the UK, and his latest book is called The End of Nice, which is a really great exploration of the future of work. Um, he also writes for the Financial Times and The Guardian, lives in London, and has a monthly column for the British Airways magazine. Rich, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thank you very much. It's great to be on the show on the other side of the mic.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things I, th- I thought we'd start with is uh, we were talking right before we uh, started recording the show that you've actually, uh, as I mentioned, you've published three books and two of them you published... By more traditional means. And then this last book, The End of Nice, you self-published and kind of tried to do the whole thing yourself. So obviously Anders and I are endlessly fascinated with disruption and how things are changing. And you've actually experienced the seedy underbelly of publishing – and been a part of this amazing transition we're going through. Tell us about the experience both ways and what you've learned and what's, what's good and bad about where we're headed with publishing and all of that sort of thing.
1: So, so the, first, the first two books, I went through uh, traditional publisher called Capstone, which is a, an imprint of Wiley. And I have to say, I, I, I in retrospect, I think I was unfair in my appraisal of what they did because it felt to me like we should be more creative in marketing. You know, we've got this wonderful online world. There are so many things we can do with social media to reach out to to an audience beyond those in the bookshop. And so I was really frustrated at what I saw as lack of uh, imagination or ambition or, or even just people wanting to stay inside... They're sort of cosy, comfortable walls. Or we've done it this way for years, and this is the, the way we'll continue doing it. So, so when I uh, did my third book and I did it online, I thought this as a sort of self-published ebook. I thought this will be an opportunity to to really uh, reach out to people that you can't get to if you just target them at the sort of railway station and airport bookstores. And I um, learned <laughs> it was really, really tough. <laughs> You know, bricks and mortar distribution, pile them high, is, uh, is a great way to do, to do the book business. Uh, <laughs> you know, so if you're, if you're one of the lucky few that manage to get into these sort of, especially for me, who, who are doing this sort of uh, personal development and business books, and you're going for the commuter market, if you can get into a railway station or an airport where the stores tend to have limited retail space, so it's mm. a sort of narrow range, but an awful lot of those, of those books to sell. You, you can do phenomenal numbers. Mm. And because I was naive, I took all of that for granted. And so trying the alternative model, much, much harder. And, and now I understand why the first question that any publisher, unless you're really famous, the first question a publisher is going to ask you is, you know, what's your platform? How famous are you? What's your What's your Twitter following? how many people have you got on Facebook? Do you have a blog? And you're thinking, what about the book? And now you realize that sort of actually, you know, they know that it's, they know it's a numbers game like everything else. So, uh,
2: so, well, let me, let me ask you about that. How does the, how does like a number of Twitter followers or, or Facebook likes or whatever it is online translate to somebody buying a book in a train station? If you have to be in the many millions, I would imagine, before you would be considered common knowledge enough, your name would be considered common knowledge enough for that to be able to translate, no?
1: Yes, I'm sure that's true.
2: I got it. So it's, we're talking like super, super high numbers, very unusually high Twitter followers, unusually high Facebook likes or whatever it is, right?
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's visibility and noise. So I think, I think last year, just before Christmas, Certainly in in the UK, it was the sort of two or three highest rated, as in viewing numbers, um, YouTube uh, creators produced books. And I'm pretty sure they were open about the fact that they they did nothing.
2: Hmm.
1: They they put their name on the cover of the book and they all stormed the charts and sold, I don't know, sort of 70,000 copies in a week. And when you're when you're grinding out each sale online, <laughs> you realize you realize seventy thousand is a phenomenal number to sell in a week. So uh, yeah, the, uh, you need that level of visibility.
2: So it's really just the you're saying it's mostly the access to the limited shelf space that is making a, a publisher worth it. So w- what else does a publisher bring to the the table for you? Um, I, the reason I'm drilling on this is because my brother wrote a book and it was the same kind of a story. He got in the door and then after that, you know, his, his next book, he, he basically needed to find a, a different publisher. Uh, he couldn't do it alone.
1: Um, well, I, th- I think you get they they have access to uh, some of the tools that generate a conversation in the, in, in the traditional ah, book.
2: Right, yeah
1: so they know, about, they know how to get reviews and to get people talking about it. Um, but, but you're talking more about sort of literary books there and uh, um, pre- pretty weighty nonfiction, I think. Mm-hmm. Then they have that commercial nous, which, is, which, which, like everyone, can be faulty, but they've got a pretty good idea of what sells. And so they'll look at your book and they'll say, look, I, we think we can knock this into shape and make it a, a commercial proposition. And they apply that, their experience to help you do that. If you're pursuing a self-published book, it's much more a, um, a work of passion and self-interest. So, so um, uh, you don't have that discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd say that will work out in your favor you know, from time to time, but
2: right. not,
1: not that often.
2: So let's jump into the topic of the book um, or the topics of the books. Can you speak about your last book and you know, just give us the premise very quickly?
1: So actually, this, this, this actually comes from exactly the example we were talking about. I, I had been told by my publisher that, that they thought creativity was, was, was if done right, could be a good subject. And I sort of went off. And mm. whilst I was doing my last startup, I was also trying to write this book. And I wrote an enormous beast of a book with stolen color plates from all sorts of websites and utterly uncommercial. So I, there was there was no chance on earth that I would ever find a publisher for that, but I thought I can. I, there's a piece in here which which actually is sort of fairly tight and resonant, and and that was the piece where I tried to make the, the idea of creativity relevant to the situation that most of us find ourselves in today. And so I, I turned this little piece into a book. It's called The End of Nice, and what I, what I'm trying to address in that book is how do individuals cope with Automation and the speed of change in the world today. Because I think there's there's quite a lot said about how companies should adapt and what strategies they sh- they, they should employ. But at the, at the individual level, I think we're we're still slightly uh, bereft of in any direction, unless you're one of the few lucky people who who, who think I'm I'm riding this wave. But that's <laughs> that's a very small minority of people.
2: Yeah.
0: So, so what so, does that what does that look like for the worker or the you know, someone who's going to an office every day and maybe they're, I don't know, they're doing customer service or they're writing ad copy or they're, you know, doing things that are somewhat repetitive, but also have a little bit of creativity. Where does, in all the research you did and just you're thinking about where we're headed, um, I think Anders and I both share the view that Uh, a large part of the workforce is going to have a lot of trouble adding value in within, you know, 10 to 15 years time, unless they adapt and make themselves, you know, move more into the creative space and less into the, you know, I'm doing what a machine can do kind of work. So I'm just curious where, you know, and all the research you did and all that sort of thing, where do you see where do you see the dominoes starting to fall? And where do you see the where people are most exposed right now?
1: So I, I think there's, it's probably pretty well known now that, it, that that if your job doesn't involve enormous amounts of dexterity uh, or original thinking, but does involve a lot of data processing and rote tasks, then you're in the crosshairs. And as I think we also know, this is a change from previous levels of or bouts of waves of automation because it's not just targeting physical labor, it's, it's going up the pay scale. And I think one of the things that people neglect to see is that if, if you're the creator of a robot or an algorithm or some, some AI and you want to, to commercialize that, you're going to target high paying jobs because that's where you get the biggest return and people are going to find your, job, your, your uh, product uh, the most attractive. And that means that a lot of people who think they're safe are going to find that they're not safe. So it will be uh, a lot of professions, accountants, lawyers, that sort of work, I th- uh, people, in, people in the financial institutions as well, I think, who, who will find themselves at the wrong end of this uh, wave of disruption because for the, for the most part, they're either just interpreting data or mediating between two systems or two or, or two people, and and I think mediation is something that's unre- that, that, that 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 will disappear. And uh, data analysis, for the most part, certainly data input, but also some data analytics, is is is, is an area that uh, people will find themselves um, unemployed in.
0: What is uh, if, so? If you're in those lines of work, what's the, what are the practical things that you were sitting across the table from somebody and they're like, holy smokes, you know, I'm a financial analyst for, you know, insert your bank name here. And up to now, I've made a really nice six-figure living just doing what I do every day. But you're telling me that in a few years, I'm going to be in trouble. Where does that where does that person go? What do they start looking at? And what are the kinds of work, you know, that make them, uh, help them stay valuable to the firm they're in? Or just generally, how does somebody stay uh, stay valuable in in the economy that you're proposing is coming?
1: Well, I, I, so, so I think people will be constantly retraining and, and um, going from career to career to career. I, I saw a piece of research from Australia last week that showed I think that something like 80% or, or maybe it was higher of university students were training for jobs that will be dead by the time they've graduated.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, that sounds
1: about right. Right and they said that um the average the average employee would be or the average person rather would graduate would have five careers and 17 jobs in their life. Um and that's five careers. So uh, That's remarkable.
0: Yeah. That's absolutely but, remarkable because I'm thinking like my dad had one career. He he worked for 49 years teaching music at a university. And that was uh, I mean he did various things within that. But uh, I just think about what I've done, and I've basically done two things, but I've had lots of different – I've probably had 10 different jobs or 15 in the 20 years. I haven't had 15, but I've probably had 10. Um, And it's stunning to think that not only do I have to um, do the equivalent of what Anders and I have done, which is basically learn how to write software, so that's a career. And to think about having to do that five times – well, um,
2: what do you really mean? I mean, what, what is so obviously? If you uh, have already learned how to write software, and then you go into any other area, I think there that's pretty portable. There's lots of that's true. Maybe that's the wrong maybe that's I'm, probably a bad I'm, example. The wrong example. But if yeah. you're if you've trained if you've gone to school to become a well, like your your dad, a, a you know music teacher, and uh, and that's that's your thing that That's maybe not quite so portable, so maybe that's more what we're talking about,
0: yeah, or the account- i think an accountant is an interesting sure uh that's an interesting job, like you know here's that's because it's something you've got to go to school for you do you go take the c p a exam, you kind of set yourself up and you think, this is what i'm going to do, and then you know rich comes in and just pops your bubble and says, "Oh, by the way, in five years, everything you just learned is going to be done by a machine, hmm. So yeah. what, is the, what does an accountant do who's – I mean do they just pick another uh, – does that naturally evolve? How do you see that working?
1: Just sort of to go back a bit my, 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 because I don't really know, know, know the answer to that because I think what, what we're asking people to do is to predict what, what will your job be in 10 years' time or you know, what careers will there be in 15 years' time? And almost anyone who's prepared to make a guess on that is smoking something. <laughs> because it's so hard to tell what are the jobs going to be. Yeah. You know, if I told my dad, dad "Oh, I've just uh, got a job as a developer evangelist," um, he'd be like, "I have no idea what you're talking about."
0: That's right. That's right. I, is, that a, is that a new religion? Like, what are you talking about?
1: It's, and and I can't believe that that, that job will still be around. You know, it, I'm sure that's like everything. Nowadays, it, it, it arrives, it has its moment and, and, it, and it sort of drifts off and people will find new ways to, uh, or, or new products even that need to be, let's say, evangelized or promoted or explained mm-hmm. in some other way. So I feel it. it we have to go almost back a, back a step and reconsider our approach to sort of work and life and have an openness to constant change. And I think an awful lot of conversation now is still based on this idea that, yeah, things are going pretty fast right now, but if we hold on tight, it'll settle down, and then I can end up doing this, Um, and then I'll be a developer evangelist, or whatever it might be. And what's really happening, of course, is acceleration continues to accelerate, and uh, the world keeps turning. And the only way to uh, reach an accommodation with that is to end up being comfortable with that level of uncertainty and Constant change and start to enjoy that, but I don't think that's what we've been trained and conditioned to do We still because the people who taught and conditioned and trained us thought in terms of um, If not a job for life a career for life Not not five careers for life or or or, or ten
2: Right, so the the world will never be as slow as it is right now Um, so in order to gear yourself for that. The, the problem is you've got an educational system that is written toward training a person for life. So you have to, I mean, you really are talking about a fundamental change of the education, you know, educational system so that you train lifelong learners that are able to adapt and flex and, and change like that. There's, that's one thing, or you're talking about a continuing education field. That's got to get a lot bigger. One of the two or yeah, both. No, I,
1: I think it's, I think we end up at, at, at the second, and people are constantly throttling up and down their level of uh, exposure to employment and education, depending mm-hmm. so sort of the job they 're doing and the skills they have and where that is and in the life cycle of that skill and so I might for example say'm right, I'm, I'm now I think blockchain is the place to be, and i 'm going to come to your course, Anders, and learn about the blockchain. And I reckon that'll that'll keep me in employment for ten years after that, maybe but but then maybe I'll need to go and retrain in something else mm. um, and and people will be sort of leapfrogging me in in that space
0: mm-hmm. What do you feel like a company's or an employer's responsibility or is or how does a company start thinking about this world you're describing in terms of? let's assume for a moment that they, they want to hang on to their most valuable employees. And I think what constitutes a valuable employee is going to change radically based on what you're saying. And so uh, if you make the assumption that the things that lots of people do today are going to slowly or maybe quickly go away, but there are people who are good at just sort of adapting and figuring out the next thing, what does a company look like in you know five ten years time? Are they is part of your job spending two to three months learning new stuff? You're not actually doing productive work, but part of what you do you know just a part of your job is learning. And is that something companies are going to be paying for more as as we go ahead here? How do you see that?
1: I I think that is one of the biggest questions society faces. Maybe. This this election that that's coming in the U.S. May, may be the last one before this sort of question rises to the surface, because because the alternative to companies paying for ongoing education is the state paying through some sort of um, universal basic income. Mm. And what what drives that debate is also inequality, and inequality, you know, is uh, an area that's becoming increasingly uh, uh, vocal. Um, in, in, in politics. So, so I don't know whether it's going to become. I mean, it could It Someone has to be. It will have to be paid for, for, for an equitable uh, society that people want to live in that works and functions. Then uh, there needs to be a way to allow people to sort of dip out of uh, intense work and, and do retraining and then go back in. So I think the whole sort of cycle. Changes, and, and my, my other observation there would be that a lot of companies are, you know, that the, the lifespan of companies is shrinking. You know, it's it's like we humans are becoming Galapagos tortoises of life, right? We're we're living longer and longer, and our companies are becoming like mayflies. Um, hmm. And I, th- I think S and P five hundred companies, which used to last about seventy years, now last I don't know fifteen, sixteen years on. On, on average, something like that, um, So, so and, and an awful lot of people are employed in startups and we know how long most of them last, so you know, I, again, I, I come back to finding some sort of balanced accommodation with, 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 with work because you, know, you can't, most founders of startups will not reach financial escape velocity, right? so they start again and they start again, but you can't keep applying yourself with that same level of intensity. Especially if you're going to live as long as a Galapagos tortoise. Right? You, you, so so you, you need to uh, find, find a pace of life that um, uh, works for, uh, for, for the lifespan that you have.
0: Yeah, it would also seem to me that there's also a necessary adjustment of lifestyle for lots of people coming because if work becomes much more flexible and maybe I'm working for. 18 months on something and then i've got six months where i'm doing you know i'm training for the next thing or the pace of that 18 months was frenetic and i need you know i don't know i need three or four months to sort of back away from it and figure out what i'm going to do next it seems like that naturally creates well i can't have you know i can't have the big house in the suburbs or i can't have i'm not going to be living the same way and i think uh, and i know I've, i've read your book and now, you talk about this a lot, that lifestyle, maybe the coming lifestyle change is actually going to be positive in, in that it will force people to sort of adjust how they think about not only work, but, you know, their personal finances and all of those things. It may be that we get into a life where we're taking many, many breaks lots of times instead of taking one big break at the end, right?
1: Yeah, I, I- uh, absolutely right, and uh, I mean I, I guess I should make clear that, that, that I actually have a, a, a quite a positive view of the way uh, th- th- things will turn out um, but, but but I think the process of uh, change is always a little bit uh, difficult, but the, the shift from rote routine jobs where, you, where it was much easier to, to determine if people were Making mistakes or not, and that was upon that rested an awful lot of your life outcome. To one where we're asking people to um, uh, uh, rest on their more profoundly human qualities, which we're of, of sort of creativity, empathy, sort of storytelling, social inter- human interaction, this sort of stuff—the stuff which is much more difficult for AI to replicate—is actually much it 's a much more natural, happy state for most people to operate in so so I think if we can find a way for for people to keep retraining in ways that brings forward their profoundly human skills which are natural to them and therefore enjoyable um, and get rewarded for those then then, then I think um, uh, we we have a pre- pretty positive outcome I think we do need to adjust to the constant retraining and the way uh, that you just described so that we are sort of on off on off rather than this massive sort of 40 50 year burst of intense work followed by a sort of gradual decline <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right uh, that's right where you spend 20 years trying to stave off death
1: exactly. something like that yeah
0: yeah it's i think it's i i agree with you i think and we had uh, the tone had been sort of negative but i agree i think there's a there's a period where it's going to be uncomfortable for lots of people but i do think um, i think the biggest favor that we can do for you know people who are let's say who are 10 right now uh, and entering middle school and high school and all of those kinds of things that probably the most profound impact we can have on them is to simply tell them look you the, the world you're going to be entering is a world where it won't really matter what you're doing, you're gonna have you're going to have to be good at the following kinds of things, you know, the things you mentioned, being being more human, being uh, understanding what the creative process is and learning how maybe perhaps your the courses you take are on design thinking instead of, you know, accounting one oh one or whatever. Like I can see those kinds of things being where colleges and high schools and the education system if they get it right, would shift away from "here's a skill" to "here's how you learn a skill," which is a very profound shift. Um, but I think makes the world a way more interesting place long term.
2: Yeah, I I think that's a that's a great way to say it. The other thing is uh, because of our different examples, we had the example of uh, the accountant, but also the example of you know somebody in, in software. There's a big difference between the professions as to their runway. And so I think that is that I don't know if it eases, but that definitely helps the transition it, because it's, it's great to go to the, the five-year-old right now and uh, kind of, you know, engineer how education will work for their life, but you don't really do that for the 45 year old person who is uh, facing a very difficult uh, road ahead because they assumed they would just always be doing X, so I think there is a transition period here, and that's that's driven by the different um, kind of runways that these professions have.
1: And, 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 and an observation on on, on on the question of runways is that you know a lot of people look to historical precedent, and I think we're we're, we're all probably familiar by now with the example of the auto car replacing uh, you know the horse and. The guy who made buggy whips lost his jobs, and so on. And I think what what's new now is that the 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 scale and velocity of change um, means that this level of disruption and automation is happening in myriad places all at once. And as it, uh, someone described it, as a hundred Gutenberg moments all at once. And mm-hmm. I think that's what that that's what the challenge is. You know, before. An industry might have got disrupted over 50 or 100 years and people migrated from one job to another or one area of work to another. But th- this is happening uh, all at once in an awful lot of fields in, in, in a very short space of time, and it's not going to stop. Um, so so that's, that, 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 that creates a, an urgency, to di- discuss this, probably at the sort of political level, which, which I don't think uh, ha- has has risen to the surface yet, hmm. because we can't keep trying to sort of out robot the robots. That, that's an absurd thing to do, um, <laughs> right? So, so, um, so, so what, what I did what I did in the book was like, was, was I thought, well, who, who, you know, who in the past always did these sort of profoundly human things that or these non robotic things, and of course it was artists and entrepreneurs and inventors, because they were always, you know, taking risks, ignoring the rules, uh, um, being dismissive of sort of fashion and, and, and opinion, uh, and they explored their own new ideas uh, in, in sort of, uh, in defiance of convention, and um, so, so, so what I tried to do there was to codify some of their behaviors, rather than what they did, because I'm not sure how relevant that is to us anymore. Um, but their, their sort of, their, their, their attitude to getting things done. Uh, and, you know, I'd say at the, probably at the, at the top of the list would be this, um, uh, comfortable, being comfortable with uncertainty, um, and with making mistakes. And, uh, that th- those would be two of the qualities that probably mark them out from other people. And, and, um, uh, because uh, we can no longer be certain about very much at all. Accelerating change means we're, we're always going to be facing new technologies and opportunities and uh, you know if you're working in a big company and, and you, you see an opportunity for change, for, for change or uh, advancement over a competitor, your conditioning from what I would call the nice age is to say well this, this looks like a good opportunity I'm going to see how it works out when that company over there does it. And if it works, we'll do it. Um, and the pace of life is such that I don't think that sort of cautious attitude works anymore. Because by the time it's worked for them, uh, they're already on to the next thing. And uh, you've missed that opportunity.
2: Right. But then, uh, I mean, certainly with the title of your book, you're you're almost implying that it's it's going to be uh, you know, doggy dog, just a rat race. I mean, <laughs> give us some hope here, right? Uh,
1: no, no but, but but I think I think I I, I I think being anti-certain is is nice. It's saying, hey, look, I don't know what I don't know what we're get I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. But the best way is to go and uh, explore. And th- and that that's the same with this sort of anti-safe. The, the, this idea of not being safe is is is, is actually it's about being bold. Mm. And and so I, I would say. Perhaps that one of the most useful things to come out of the sort of startups and Silicon Valley uh, culture is the idea of the pivot, which is suddenly allows you to to say, "Hey, that strategy was is no longer fit for purpose, and I've got a new one," and and you, you don't lose your job, uh, yeah. and 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 get your sort of bonus quashed. Um, so, so 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 I I think it's a good I think it's a good thing. Also. On the subject of the title, I mean, I I really messed up there because it was sort of ironic. Um, nice was was the way I was trying to describe the world where everyone was shaving down their rough, splintery edges of you know their personality in order to fit the mold of the uh, the perfect employee, and you and you have your career for life, and you do whatever was necessary in order to 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 uh, not get fired to advance up the hierarchy, and uh, you'd be rewarded with uh, sort of uh, earning more than your parents, having a, a home and a pension and a car, and and all, all, all of that sort of stuff, which was wonderful. I'm not at all dismissive of that, but uh, I don't think that world exists anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that was a nice world. And he said, you know, I will trade my a job that uh, allows me to be profoundly human and creative and empathetic and Sort of storytelling and show loads of initiative for one where I'm following the rules. Because when 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 the world moved more slowly, you knew what was going to happen and you had a you you basically this was your job and if you and you knew what you were supposed to do and if you didn't do it, you'd got it wrong. So you 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 had right and wrong. Whereas now the world moves so fast, it's like okay, here's a new problem. We need to find a new solution for it. so, so so it's a, it's a more more daring and exciting world that we're in now um but it requires a different mindset
0: yeah and i think it for me the thing that uh that it seems to come back to is and i know you've said this but i just summarizing what you've what you've talked about it's like we've got to get as a culture we've got to get way more comfortable with risk and with uncertainty and with being able to absorb periods where uh, periods in life where uh, our income is much more volatile, um, and and not only see that as a down uh, as something that's a negative, but ab- actually take it as a positive and say, oh, I've I've got this period coming up where things are going to be a little bit uncertain. Uh, I'm going to use that time to you know take this trip that I've been wanting to take and go learn about you know Roman history by visiting Rome or whatever those things are. Uh, it feels like there's, it's just a, it's a really, uh, the easy, I think the easy way to read your book is to say, Rich is a doom and gloom guy and the world's coming to an end. Whereas when I read it, I I actually found it to be quite inspiring because it was like, well, yeah, some of the things that, uh, humans do today, machines are going to do, but that's also an opportunity for us to get more creative and to just think about work in a radical new way. And, uh, as not being this death march until you finally get to retire, but rather it's it 's these bursts of creativity and doing really interest, interesting things followed by not necessarily rest but you know new education or reorienting on a different problem and then going down that road um,
1: well i 'm glad you said that because that that, that that is how I feel about things you know I, I do feel it 's uh, uh, There's the future holds out a very bright uh, hand of of opportunity and self empowerment, as well as a sort of rather bleak hand if if we as sort of choose make some bad decisions at the society and individual level.
2: So we've covered publishing. We've covered the way that we're thinking about the the world where it goes. So how how do people? uh, you know, how do people connect with you? What's the, uh, what's, uh, what are, where, where do people find you on the net? How, what's, what's your Twitter handle or, or, you know, what's, what are the preferred ways to talk to you?
1: Well, Twitter is at rich Newton and, uh, that's a great way to, to get hold of me. My, my, my blog is richard-newton.com and I, I try and post all, all the articles I write for various newspapers and other opinions in there, So that, that, that's a good place to see what I'm talking about and, and link into all the other places where I'm writing and speaking.
2: Fantastic. Well, thanks for uh, being on the show. This has been super interesting. I, I formed some opinion about where, you know, that I hadn't thought of before about where, uh, what the world looks like when it's uh, much, much quicker changing. So appreciate your time. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot,
0: Rich. And thanks. for all of our listeners, we will put uh, links to where you find Rich online and to all of his books and to some of the columns that uh, in various newspapers that he's written lately and just anywhere you can find him, You'll find those all in the show notes and uh, by all means we encourage you to reach out. Rich is a fascinating guy and has an opinion on just about everything and uh, really is a is a great guy to get to know. So Rich, thanks again for being on the show and for everyone else. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for having me.